Good morning. I'm Sabrina. I'm one of the pastors here. And <laughs> so friendly. <clears throat> okay, so button in the middle to start or a little arrow. Button don't want a laser pointer. So this is going to... That's going to go forward. That's and that's backwards. Thank you. I haven't used this before. Sorry. All right. Oh, what is that there for? Because that's got nothing to do with... There we go. Just right. I'm going to get it just right this morning. And you can all hold me to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's not going to happen. All right, here we go. I have to sit on my stool because we're here in the library and it's story time. No chewing gum in the library, everyone. Are you ready? The parable of Goldilocks and the three disciples. Once upon a time, there were three disciples who lived alongside one another in community. One of them was a little small wee disciple. One was a middle-sized disciple. And the other was a great, huge disciple. One Sunday, before celebration gathering, after they had started the coffee maker, filled with cafe justo, they walked out into the wood while the coffee was brewing. In case anyone else showed up early, they left a note that said they'd be back shortly. And all three disciples signed the note. Now, while they were out walking, a little girl came into the building. This little girl had golden curls that tumbled down her back to her waist, and everyone called her Goldilocks. Goldilocks looked around inside, and since no one was here to talk to, and since the three disciples had left their names on the note, the little girl Googled them, checking out their social media to get a feel for who these coffee brewers were. First, she checked out the Facebook of the great, huge disciple. Bold involvement in social justice causes, a clear love for preaching and evangelism, even published writing, and interviews on several popular podcasts. Wow, so impressive, so intimidating, so risky. She knew about all the famous church leaders who had crashed and burned in horrible public ways. Goldilocks couldn't imagine living that kind of life as a follower of Jesus. That kind of life was too hot to handle. Next, she checked out the Instagram of the little small wee disciple. Rarely posted anything other than pictures of food, puppy videos, cat memes, and not a single photo of themselves wearing a catchy Jesus-y t-shirt. To look at the feed, Goldilocks would never be able to tell that this disciple actually lived a life of radical generosity to the poor, had commitment to prayer and meditation on the word of God, and lived in dedicated service to their family. So Goldilocks was not impressed. That kind of life was too chill. And finally, she went to the LinkedIn of the middle-sized disciple and checked it out. And that was neither too hot nor too chill, but just right. Volunteer involvement listed in Christian organizations that care for marginalized people groups, but without anything that sounded preachy. Photos from a city cleanup project where a couple of folks were wearing Christian t-shirts, but where there were also people drinking beer at the picnic afterwards and a link to a crowdfunding plea for a young person who needed sponsorship to become a Bible translator for Wycliffe. And she was so delighted with it that she liked every post. By this time, 
the three disciples thought the coffee would be done brewing, so they came back to the lobby. <gasps> Imagine their surprise when they found Goldilocks there scrolling through her phone. The great huge disciple said, welcome friend I haven't met yet, in their great rough gruff voice and wide-eyed, Goldilocks caught her breath. <sighs> the little small wee disciple just shyly waved and smiled. Goldilocks resisted the urge to roll her eyes and half smiled back. And when the middle-sized disciple said, hi, can I pour you a cup of coffee? Goldilocks felt at home. That kind of discipleship was just right. <laughs> the end. <clears throat> Galatians 1.10. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the Christians in Galatia, <clears throat> and this letter has a really consistent theme running through it. It's all about really like embracing life in Christ, about living as disciples, about learning to keep on freely following Jesus, even when forceful personalities or persuasive ideologies try to get us all twisted up. And there are warnings about slavery to all sorts of religious traditions or to people's strong opinions about precisely how to apply the lordship of Jesus to life. There's a clear call to live in freedom from everything that would enslave us, living not as slaves but as children of God. In some ways, this seems kind of silly because what free person needs to explicitly be told that you should really avoid handing yourself over into slavery? I mean, what person following Jesus could possibly be bothered by some person's opinion of them, right? I'm sure none of you have ever experienced any problem with someone's opinion of you, right? Somehow, we humans don't have as easy a time living free as we would hope. Stumbling into slavery to somebody's opinions or to some tradition of, but this is the way it's done, right? That's a real danger. So as Paul's letter unfolds, <clears throat> he spells out this concept of, no, they're trying to label you as either okay or not okay. Don't let them do it. They are steering you wrong. So he spells it out, and he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, and you're really echoing a lot, thanks. Woo. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Apparently, we lose all the limiting labels when we decide to follow Jesus. We have identity as followers of Jesus, and the other stuff falls away. So if I was going to paraphrase it, I'd throw in there, there's neither intellectuals nor physically gifted, neither direct communicators nor nuanced, nor is there cautious nor adventurous, nor emotional nor reserved. There is no visual, auditory, nor kinesthetic preference for learning, no bent toward creative expression, nor concrete explanation. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The labels fall away. It's like... God is colorblind, you know? Isn't that just wonderful? I mean, kind of? 
Because do you see the problem in this kind of thinking? And how has that whole colorblind thing worked out for us over the years with racism, right? See, the last time I checked, there are actually differences among us. Um, lots of them, actually. Each of us was born in some geographical location, and we had parents of a certain race, ethnicity, background. Each of us has personality traits passed down to us. We live under very different sets of circumstances, particularly if we look at the church across the world, right? We actually do hail as Jews or Gentiles. We're still wired very differently from one another, even after years of living in community and following Jesus. And ask somebody who's actually held in slavery if they live the same way as I do. I think they're going to tell you not so much. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And we are all individuals, unique and varied at the same time. We're one in our desire to follow Jesus as Lord. But we're super-duper diverse in how we live out that discipleship. And Jesus actually did not call for homogenization. This is where the Goldilocks story creates a problem for us. We are often drawn by a desire to find the just right version of discipleship. We're drawn to admire and emulate different qualities based on individuality. Okay, so maybe you're the life of the party. Maybe you take up a lot of space, right? Um, maybe people look to you as a natural leader you live with tremendous intentionality. And Goldilocks thinks you are the great, huge disciple with the gruff, rough voice. Maybe you're somebody who likes to observe for a time before contributing. You choose your words carefully. You take your time doing it. You don't really like rollicking debate. You have a gentle heart. And it directs you to care for broken people and to do it in ways that often fly under the radar. And Goldilocks thinks that you're the little wee small bear whose life is too chill to count for much as a follower of Christ. Or maybe you're someone who is very sensitive to the different expectations and needs of the people that you encounter. You try to adjust the amount of air that you draw in because you're eager to avoid offending anyone. You think bold things that you very quickly censor and find a safe way to say them instead. You have a big dream, or maybe even two, that you would love to discuss with somebody. But that seems really risky outside the confines of a HIPAA-protected counseling session. You love Jesus deeply. You really want to do an amazing, authentic love-soaked, world-changing job of following him as a disciple. But you are so worn out from trying to make sure you are doing things just right that you feel practically paralyzed some days. Does any of this land with you? Even if you don't personally struggle with this question of, in light of who Jesus is, who am I? It's a big question. In light of who Jesus is, who am I? But maybe you're somebody who doesn't really struggle with that very much. I mean, even if not, you've seen it around you, right? Because some folks have a beautiful ability to simply be themselves and come after Jesus. So I'm not trying to make the assumption that every Christian has some kind of an identity crisis when it comes to discipleship. But I think we can all agree it's a common problem 
in the church? So I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> Who the heck is Goldilocks? Who is the girl with the long golden curls in your past or in your head who's judging the lives of various people and who's deciding this one's a little too much, this one's a little too lame, but this one is just right. So <clears throat> Life Path has a new message series starting on practices of discipleship next week. And before that series begins, we're going to take a close look at ourselves as disciples, as individual disciples. We want to look closely so that we can describe accurately. Okay? You're not going to grade yourself on your discipleship this morning. You're just going to take a close look at it and get a genuine picture. This is not an attempt to grade your work. So here we go to the whiteboard because that's what we do at Life Path. Philosophers dig into the idea of self. And they vary some in their opinions, but many of them boil it down into sort of a two-pronged thing. So there's the substance, and then there's the purpose. There we go. Now, the substance is made up of two things. It's made up of being and knowledge. The purple pen is sad. Let's try this purple pen. Oh, that's better. Being and knowledge. And the purpose part is divided into values and choices. So I'm going to go visual with this because we had so much fun with our napkin ecclesiology at the first steps meeting a few weeks ago. I think drawing little shapes is kind of groovy. So here we go. This represents substance and it's made up of being and knowledge. The idea here is that your substance is what is. It's what your DNA wired you for. It's what your family of origin did or didn't provide to you and how that shaped you. It's what your intellectual capacity is, what your physical health is like, whether you're right-handed or left-handed, visual, spatial, verbal, all of those things. You know, if you can't make yourself shorter or taller by thinking about it or by having big feelings about it, there's some things that just are about who you are. That is being. And the knowledge part, that's referring to what you've learned thus far, up to this exact moment in time. Knowledge can always be expanded, it can always be deepened, but it's always limited, because as of right now, I don't know what I don't know. And I haven't experienced what I've never experienced. And I can choose to lean into all sorts of things and learn more and acquire more knowledge. But at any moment in time, my knowledge simply is what it is, right? However, your purpose is made up of your values and your choices. So we're going to put our values in here because they're the things that we hold dear. 
They're the things that we truly believe have significance in life. For some people, that's puppy videos and cat memes, and that's okay, right? For some of us, not so much. And then there's our choices that take us in any number of directions. You decide what you think is important and what you think is expendable. That shows what you value. Something can stir your emotions really deeply, but then when you think it through, you go, yeah, no, that was actually just an emotional response. That's not actually something that I think has real value. And conversely, you can be exposed to something and be like, yeah, whatevs, and then you just can't get away from it. And at two o'clock in the morning, you're awake and you're thinking about it and you're going, oh man, that is profoundly important. How have I never seen this before? I, my life needs to do something about that, right? And this is how we establish what we value, what we hold dear. Choices are always under our control. Now, that doesn't mean you always get to choose between the options that you would like. Many situations are beyond our control, but within those situations, we still have choices to make. We always have choices to make. Choices to speak, what to speak, or maybe not to speak at all. Choices to act, how to act, or maybe not act at all. Choices to settle into an attitude and to decide how we are going to sit within the confines of that circumstance that we can't change. So what you hold dear and what you do with it. Values and choices, right? That makes up purpose, but there's two pieces to the self, right? Because there's also substance, being and knowledge. The substance is immovable. Um, and I just lost my place. The substance is immovable, there we go, unless God miraculously turns you into something that you've never been before, which could happen, but it doesn't happen very often, just saying. The purpose, however, is always yours to steer. So what you value and how you choose to live because of what you value, that's yours. Now, at one point, Jesus famously told his disciples that they should deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow him. Deny themselves. This is a verse that has been misunderstood in a lot of traditions. That's a whole other message for a whole other day, probably, because there's a lot to unpack there. But we're just going to touch just very briefly on this idea of deny self. And maybe for some of you, this is going to be a new take on that idea. There is a long-standing attitude within many faith traditions that says, apart from Jesus, there is nothing good about you. You need to throw yourself away on the trash heap, ask Jesus for a new identity, and live a life that has nothing to do with who you were before you decided to follow him. There's so much shame. There's so much weight of effort in leaving behind everything that you've ever known and loved. There are relationships that get severed. There's the abandoning of activities that you actually have a talent and a love for, but they aren't quote-unquote godly pursuits, so they don't have any value. To deny yourself means to deny who you are your substance. But see, denying your substance doesn't actually change your substance. 
No matter how many verses that you pull out of the Bible in an effort to proof text what your substance should be, it doesn't actually work. I'm still going to be right-handed and verbal. No matter how hard I try to tell myself that good disciples are left-handed and visual-spatial. I can deny my love for complex conversation because proof text, Proverbs 10:19 says, when there are many words, wrongdoing is unavoidable. But I'm still going to have all those words in my head, and I'm going to be very tired trying to keep them from being spoken year after year. You can deny your love of sports, some of you, because proof text, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. And being competitive is a selfish pursuit. You desire to win and see another lose. You are still going to long for your favorite sport, and you're going to be very sad missing out on the very competitive games that you used to play with your league. Now, I'm not making this kind of proof texting up. If you have never encountered this kind of judgy misuse of scripture out of context, then you probably can't fully imagine how crippling it is. But if you have lived under these kinds of misapplications of God's word, then you know the slavery that I'm talking about. Those two examples right there, they're a part of my history. I'm not making this up. That was not a Goldilocks and the three disciples moment. That was just like real life. There is a different way of understanding this difficult call of Jesus to deny ourselves. So what if, what if Jesus is calling us to deny self by refusing to still fly solo with the parts of self that are under our control? Not our substance, but our values and our choices. And not willy-nilly, just assuming that everything we value is rubbish, but just humbly examining our values in light of the life and teaching of Jesus. Through that lens, examining the things that we value and the choices that we make. What if we were willing to begin throwing into the trash the things that we have always valued at the very moment when we realize they don't actually have any value. Oh, man. I thought they did, and I, and I realize now they don't. Being the smartest person in the room doesn't actually matter. I'm not going to hold on to that anymore. Jiminy, I wish I'd known that 10 years ago. It's like so much lighter to not have to be carrying that around, right? What if being really popular doesn't actually have any value? See, you can tell me that while I'm still, like, conditioned and wired for that because I've always been very popular and I'm accustomed to finding, like, the group of people and identifying with them and running with that, and that's what feels normal to me. And you can say, oh, Sabrina, that's not real. But until I, through the lens of Jesus, examine my life and go, yeah, why exactly do these people's opinions matter to me so much? I actually don't respect most of these people, and yet I'm letting them tell me, What's good and what's not good about my, why do, I don't think I do value the popularity with these people anymore. See, once you see it, once your knowledge, your substance has changed, your values change. 
And it's not this huge agonizing thing to throw something on the trash heap because you actually still really believe it has a ton of value, but somebody told you you had to throw it on the trash heap. All right. Let's go way back to early Genesis for just a second. It works better if you aim it at the computer instead of the screen. I just discovered. See, my knowledge is growing. <laughs> so God called Abram. Big moment in the overarching story of humankind. Big deal for the Jews. Big deal for Christians. The call of Abram. Um, <clears throat> God, just before he changes his name to Abraham, in case you're not sure who Abram is, it's like Abraham, you know, father of it all. Um, before he starts this whole amazing covenantal relationship, before God starts this amazing covenantal relationship with humankind through Abraham and his descendants, God calls Abram out of his current normal. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I have often read this with the emphasis on go from all these things. All the familiar things Abraham had to leave behind. What courage it took him to obey, to say goodbye, to not have a clue where he was going, where he would call home when it was all over with. And there's a sense in which this sounds like the root of that idea, to deny ourselves. We've got to break away and we've got to leave it behind to follow Jesus. But interestingly enough, I found out that the Jews traditionally read the same passage and they emphasize the other half of the call of God. And they refer to this passage and their understanding of it as the lech lecha, which is most precisely translated, go forth for you. Go forth for you. See, they see the call of God to Abraham as one in which God was calling this guy towards his true self. Yeah, that meant away from what had been his familiar home up to this point. But the point wasn't primarily a test of Abraham's willingness to obey and to leave and to sever and to go. It was to go toward the amazing life that God had for him, away from Haran and into Canaan. It was what he was going toward that was the point of the call, not what he was going away from. And yeah, it required some going away from. But the traditional Jewish understanding of this call of Abram is that God was calling him to something. It's like, the, it's like the millionaire philanthropist who shows up to the poor, downtrodden, economically ravaged senior in high school and says, I see you, you have amazing potential, and I am sending you to an incredible university, all expenses paid, and I'm going to take care of your family while you're there. Now, do we feel bad for the student because he has to move out of the Section 8 housing he's living in and has to... Like, no, this is an amazing opportunity. This is a whole new life opening for this person. And that's the traditional Jewish reading of the call of Abram. It's like God is saying, Sabrina, quit settling for an unexamined life, girl. Quit living on autopilot. Let's do life for real. Let's... Pick apart the things that you're placing value on so that you can see what actually has real value. Because if you're holding on to stuff that doesn't matter, you're just weighing yourself down. Let's look at your choices. Instead of just sliding into things without any awareness of what the results might possibly be in really important ways. 
Sabrina, are you willing to say goodbye to the stuff that's keeping you stuck and come find your real life? See, in that denial of self, my substance is still Sabrina. That doesn't get changed. I don't have to become left-handed. I don't have to become a visual spatial thinker. Oh, thank goodness, because that would be so hard. I will still be an auditory learner. I will still be a creative. I will still be a big personality who's comfortable with public speaking. I will still be a word nerd. My substance will be unchanged. But what I do with my substance will now be infused with significance. In the denial of self, you will still be you. You will still retain your substance because your substance is just right for who you are or you wouldn't have been born that way. Your substance might look different than mine, but our lives will be infused with a singular significance. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So the rest of this year until Advent, we're gonna be digging in with some super practical messages on time-honored traditions and practices of discipleship. And I wanna challenge you before that starts to resist the urge to label any of those practices as being for one type of disciple or another. When you hear the word scripture, don't say to yourself, oh, that's for the intellectual disciples, which is not me. But also don't let yourself say, oh, I'm so bad at scripture study because I'm not really an intellectual, but I'm gonna have to become more intellectual to be a good disciple, so I guess I gotta work really hard. Because either one of those responses Guys, it's a Goldilocks response. You're judging and ranking the substance of different disciples. Instead, try saying, okay, discipleship practices will strengthen my values and my choices. And I don't know exactly how yet, but I'm going to give it a chance, give it a listen, see what kind of scripture practices sound like it would be a good fit for me where I am right now in my discipleship, and then we're going to see how it goes when I give it a try. Practicing discipleship fits every kind of disciple, but it fits them in different ways. Keith and Dwayne are going to be exploring lots of possible applications of discipleship practices while I'm out of town for several weeks, and I encourage you to get excited about this series. It's going to be some of the coolest stuff we've maybe ever done at LifePath. There will be no shame. There will be no call to be somebody you're not. There will be no deciding that you need to look more like somebody else. Galatians ends, again, with the computer in this direction. See that visual spatial thing I was talking about? Mm, Not my strong suit. It ends with... A little section that says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. Do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery to Goldilocks. A yoke of slavery to Goldilocks. That may not be what the most traditional versions say, but I think that's what Paul is getting at. Whatever it is, that voice in your head that's telling you, yes, but this is what a good Christian looks like. Yes, but... I'm too outspoken, and so I need to like, not be outspoken. No, you need to be outspoken with a heart that values the love of Jesus. No, I'm too shy. 
No, you're not. You're someone who needs to be shy with a heart that values the love of Jesus for all people. You are just right. Theologian and author Dallas Willard suggested that rather than simply asking, what would Jesus do? We might wisely ask, what would Jesus do if he were me? See, in seeking to live as Jesus did and as he called us to live, we would be utterly filled with values and choices that lead to love. And the specifics of the actions that would play out for the fullness of how that would look, that's going to be as varied as we are. It's going to look different as it plays out. But we are one in Christ. That would be just right discipleship.